Welcome to the 100th episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. Add to that national authors, like we have today, because in the age of COVID-19, we've had to resort to remote podcasting. So when one door closes, another opens, and we uh, can branch out even farther in podcast land. Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member-only benefits at our Patreon page. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Police cruiser pulls in on the other side of the pump island, and this guy gets out, and he's you know fueling up his cruiser, and he's looking at me. Yeah, from across the pump island, like that, and, you know, and he drops his Ray-Bans down on his nose and he pops his hat back on his head and he's looking at me and he's like this, you know, and he's giving me this look that says, what did I arrest you for and when was it? Like, and so, <laughs> so I look at him, I thought this is going to be more embarrassing than I thought because it's going to be, you know, in, in public. And I stuck my hand out and I said, Sheriff Kirkpatrick, you're probably not going to remember me. And he goes, yeah, your name's Craig Johnson. You're the one that has the little ranch out near you cross. You're the one writing a murder mystery about a Wyoming sheriff. And I was like amazed. I mean, this was yeah. from a you know, 10 minute conversation from almost 10 years previous. And I looked at him and I said, that is absolutely amazing. And he goes, yeah, yeah. If you don't mind me saying so, this book's going kind of slow. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> That's what I remembered. You're, you're an awfully slow writer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was. Uh, the voice you just heard is that of Craig Johnson. He is our guest author today on our 100th episode. Craig is the author of the New York Times bestselling mystery series, which became the basis for the hit Netflix original series, Longmire. This episode was recorded in a cross-country remote podcast that gives new meaning to the phrase social distancing. Because Craig Johnson participated from his ranch in New Cross, Wyoming, population 25, while I was sheltering in place at home in Charlotte. Craig Johnson is a recipient of numerous awards, including the Western Writers of America Spur Award for Fiction and the Mountains and Plains Booksellers Award for Fiction. His novella, Spirit of Steamboat, was the first one-book Wyoming selection. Never short of words to put on the page or share in person, Craig gave liberally of his time discussing his ranching and writing, his first book, the book series, his last three books, his characters, the Netflix series, and the actors... Longmire Days, writing tips, and what's coming next for Craig Johnson and Walt Longmire. We talked uh, for about an hour and 20 minutes, so we're not going to put all that on this show because we're going to make space for some other things in the show here that we want to do. Uh, but we did, uh, we did provide that whole interview 
free as a public post on our Patreon page, which you can find at uh, patreon.com slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. You can check that out uh, at any time, uh, as I said, for free. And we're going to be getting into that interview throughout the course of this uh, episode. But first, uh, I have a few words about our birthday party. Happy birthday to us, happy birthday to us, happy birthday to us, happy birthday to us. Yes, uh, we are 100 years old in uh, podcast uh, years. Uh, of course, that's what it seems like sometimes when you're recording uh, episodes, everything that goes into it, uh, from the scheduling to the final edits and the posting. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been uh, quite uh, quite an adventure. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. But uh, if you're new to the show, I want to welcome you to Charlotte Reader's podcast. And if you've been listening to previous episodes, uh, I'm glad that you're back. Oh, and just to be clear, I know it's our birthday. And normally, you know, for birthdays, you'd give presents. But the podcast team says, no presents, please. But hey, I'm going to, you know, pass this along. If you feel like you want to do something to help us celebrate our 100th episode, you know, help us grow even older and do something to help give our authors voice to the written words, a short review on Apple Podcasts would be a really nice way to celebrate. You don't even have to go to the store or order anything online. and It won't cost you a penny or a buck. All you have to do is open your podcast app, scroll down to the review section, look under the visible review for a link that says write a review, and click on it, and you're there. You can leave a sentence or two and the number of stars you think appropriate, and we thank you for doing it. And by the way, let's keep this as our little secret and not let the team know that I that I asked for this. You know, what they don't know can hurt them, right? Truly, it's an honor for me that you are spending your time with us today. There are a lot of things you could be doing with your time, and I appreciate that you're sharing some of it with us. Plus, here's another reason. I heard a recent statistic on a podcast I like to listen to by Mark Asquith. He's a British podcast uh, host of a show called The Podcast Accelerator and runs Rebel Base Media. He ends every episode saying, and I can't do this in the British accent, but don't forget, the more you expect from yourself, the more you will excel. I like that. Uh, has nothing to do with what I was going to say, but I like it. Anyway, the statistic was this. Apple Podcasts just announced that we just crossed the threshold of having one million podcasts in the world. That's a huge number. And he said it took more than 10 years to get there, and he predicts the number could double in just one more year. That's another staggering fact. So the fact that you're here listening to this podcast with so many podcasts to choose from is another reason for me to say thank you. So we're now 18 months into this project to help authors give voice to their written words. So we launched this show with our first author episode in the fall of 2018. And now here we are, still breathing after 18 months and 100 shows with 117 authors. Our goal has been to introduce listeners to authors, their books, their writings, their stories, and their stories behind the stories. We do it with conversation and with readings because when an author reads their own work, we often feel, at least I do, what the author intended by their work. We also explore the writing lives of the authors, one of my favorite parts of the show. Although this is our birthday, uh, you might say that Charlotte Rear's podcast has really been on an 18-month literary party binge from episode 1 to episode 100. And the hangover, it's been like getting smacked in the side of the head with a great book or two, has been worth it. In that regard, and in the Western-themed spirit our special guest brings to this show, our 100th episode, I quote Augustus McRae, former Texas Ranger 
and one of the protagonists in Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove, the same man who said, if you don't rent pigs, you should build a sign that says so. Reflecting on his journey, he said, I guide Woodrow, it's been a hell of a ride. Gus is right. The first 100 episodes have been a hell of a ride. Sure, there's been a bit of work along the way to create these 100 episodes, but any good party takes work. Someone has to order the food and the booze and set up the tables and get the band, and someone has to tell all their friends what a great party they missed and not to miss the next one. And the same is true in podcasting. And the payoff, well, that's when we get to twist and shout and sing and dance one syllable at a time. Kind of like we did in a literary sense with our authors in the studio at live events in bookstores, and online through the magic of remote podcasting. Like a toddler learning to ride a bicycle, I started with training wheels, shed them somewhere along the way, and now when I feel particularly bold, I sometimes ride with no hands, but that can be dangerous. I've crashed a few times being stupid, so more often than not, I've tried to keep a firm grip on the handlebars. I'd like to take just a minute to tell you what we have planned for today. We're going to start off uh, uh, with some words of gratitude. Uh, Most of what I have to say, though, in that regard will be on a separate history and Thanksgiving episode on our Patreon page. But I can't get away from this episode without, uh, without a few words in that regard. And next we're going to visit with Craig Johnson, New York Times bestselling author of the Longmire series. At about the midpoint of our interview with Craig Johnson, I'm going to provide a glimpse of what's coming with the lineup for the 14 other authors who will make up season six, and also some information about the Under the Covers authors for the next few months. We'll then finish up with a Craig Johnson interview and uh, move on to season six and uh, the next episode. I'm very grateful for how this podcast has been able to grow, and particularly to those who made and are making it happen. To our listeners, without whom we serve no purpose. To our authors, without whom we have no content. To our podcast sponsors, Parker Books and Charlotte McMurray Library, for all their support. Parker Books has been with us from the beginning, and Charlotte McMurray Library joined us in season three. Please remember our sponsors during the shelter in place. Uh, Uh, Parker Books can fill your orders by phone and ship to you. You can buy local and support the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte when you do so. And although the library branches are closed, Charlotte McMurray Library continues to provide much content on its website and through remote programming. Thanks also to our member supporters who support us on our Patreon page. To our network partner, Queen City Podcast Network, and its fearless leader, Brian Baltashevitz. To our community supporter, Advent Coworking. To our dinner and a podcast partner, Poplar Tapas. To our writing community friends, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, and North Carolina Writers Network. To our episode sponsors, Spark Publications, Warren Publishing, Main Street Books and Davidson, where we held a live podcast for upcoming season six, and Oakhurst Legal Group. And to the team at Charlotte Readers Podcast. To our webmaster, Tom Pataccio. Our social media team, Wade Foley and Renee Gorman with Social Grip Marketing. Our publicity and newsletter manager, Hannah Turner with Spellbound Public Relations. Our voice talent, Sarah Vavra. Our podcast consultant, Robert Ingalls. Our photographer, Roberta Griner. And all the tweeters, Instagrammers, Facebook followers, bloggers, and everyone else who's mentioned and referred to us and engaged with the podcast. 
Thank you to all of you for helping me help authors give voice to their written words. I'm also grateful for the following. In the listener category, I'm grateful that we have close to 19,500 downloads at the 18-month mark. At the 12-month mark, we had 10,000 downloads, and six months later, we're very close to doubling that number. I realize it's not about downloads. It's really about quality and, and engaging with people who find uh, the show interesting. But then again, we do this podcast so authors can give voice to the written words, and it's gratifying to know that their words are traveling to a wider audience. Thank you again for listening, and we really appreciate that. In the author category, I interviewed 117 authors for the first 100 episodes, and we now have an author page on the website where you can access all of our authors' interviews along with images, information, and links on the authors. And I've already recorded episodes with 23 additional authors, 14 for the upcoming Season 6 and 9 for the next several months of the Under the Cover show. I've also been in touch with more than 15 other authors who, are, who were lining up for spots for Season 7 and future Under the Covers episodes. In summary, I realized when planning for this episode that in 18 months I've interviewed 140 authors and I'm already planning more interviews. That figure kind of shocked me. I mean, to put it in perspective, that's more depositions than I took in two to three years as a lawyer. And when I was a lawyer, I had a full-time assistant who did all the scheduling. So yes, I've been busy, which leads to this observation. Someone asked me when I started this podcast whether there would be enough authors to interview for this show. I think we've now answered that question. Uh, and with the talent locally and in the region, and also with some of the national authors we'll sprinkle in, I don't think we're going to have any problem filling the show with interesting, engaging, and talented authors. In fact, our geographic range of authors continues to expand. We started solely with Charlotte area authors, and we've still got a lot of authors in that category to put on the show. We then expanded to add regional authors, and with the remote podcasting, we now add authors as far away as Wyoming, like in this 100th episode. But we still plan to highlight Charlotte area authors along with regional authors, and we intend to continue to have diversity among our authors and the type of work they bring on the show. In fact, variety is a goal and a staple of Charlotte Rear's podcast, where the mic is open to multiple genres and multiple forms, including short stories, flash fiction, essay, memoir, humor, narrative nonfiction, long fiction, and more. Yeah, we, we kind of focus on books, but above all, we focus on story. Now, family, I'd like to propose a quick toast and appreciation of the recognition the show has received to Charlotte Reader's podcast for not dying a technical malfunction at the hands of a recovering trial lawyer, for being fortunate to have Park Road Books as a sponsor from day one, for being fortunate again when Charlotte McRae Library joined as a sponsor in season three, for finishing 19th out of 370 entries in the WFE PodQuest competition in February 2019, for being invited to join the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of more than two dozen Charlotte-based podcasts, for being selected by Queen City Nerve as best podcast in Charlotte 2019, for adding another show, the Under the Cover show, in January, so more authors can appear on the podcast and so listeners have the option of a 25-minute show. For having the courage and patience to dive into remote podcasting when the world shut down so that the upcoming season and the 100th episode could be completed on time. And for having a wonderful team and group of supporters and listeners. Cheers to turning 100.
Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte McMurk Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Okay, now that we've blown out the birthday candles, let's, uh, let's dive into the cake. To the good part of the show here, we've got our, our interview with Craig Johnson. Now, originally, uh, we had planned to have a big celebration at Catawba Brewing. We were going to have several hours, uh, lots of authors have been on the show, panel discussion, uh, and did I say beer? Yeah, we're going to do that too. But uh, when the when the virus came along, we had to readjust, and yeah, so we, we have readjusted this, the door that opened when the other one closed. We'll have to do that party sometime, but, but for now... Uh, I'm very grateful that uh, Craig Johnson said yes. Uh, it was me and Charlotte, uh, him and you cross Wyoming on his ranch, uh, population 25, not the ranch, but you cross Wyoming. Had a great conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, as I said, at the midpoint mark, we'll talk about what's coming in season six and some uh, under the covers uh, authors that are coming as well. So uh, if you're ready, let's get to it. Hey, listeners, I'm so happy to be here today with uh, New York Times bestselling author Craig Johnson. He's the author of the Longmire series, about which we're going to talk more today, and we're recording remotely. Um, Craig, welcome to the show. We're about as remote <laughs> as you can get. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that uh, where, where, where you live offers an entirely new meaning to remote. Right? Absolutely, it's, absolutely. It's, we're, we're in Ucross, Wyoming, population 25, the epicenter of social distancing, as I've been referring to it. And well, so, you know, w- when I met you two years ago, um, it's it had a population of twenty five then too. I mean, it, it does. <laughs> and, and to be honest, like it's a, it's a blatant lie, is what it is. Like, um, I think I'm trying to think. I think that the census was done sometime in the seventies, maybe, and they, mm-hmm. you know, that's when they did the sign. Like, that, and of course, it tells you the altitude. Yeah. That's very important in Wyoming, where the altitude is of the, the town but also the population. At that point in time, we were in a boom. And so there was a population of 25. Like, And now we're kind of in a bust a little bit. Like, So we're down to 19, actually. Like, so. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. So what's social distancing like in you cross Wyoming? Not one damn bit difference than it was like at four or five months ago. I got <laughs> You mentioned not having cell phones. That's sort of a trait of Walt Longmire, too. It is. <laughs> Your protagonist, is. yeah. Well, the cell phones are here, but the towers aren't. Like, so okay. it's, uh, it's one of those situations where, you know, I'm always laughing about that because, you know, a lot of people will ask me, you know, they'll say you know, whether they're reading the books or whether they're watching the TV show, like on Netflix. Um, and they'll ask me, they'll say, you know, well, why doesn't Walt Longmire, you know, have a cell phone? And my immediate response to that is you've never been to Wyoming, have you? Like, yeah. and, uh, it's, it's generally the, the, the thing I'm trying to get across like, um, is that, you know, whenever I started writing the books, everything was really um, technologically driven. Everything was all about forensic medicine and DNA testing and all the CSI stuff like that. And I happened to run into two DCI investigators one time 
here in Wyoming. And I asked them, I said, how long does it take you guys to get DNA evidence? And the one looked at me and said about six to nine months. And I thought, okay, well, then that's not particularly honest what they're doing in this TV shows and all these books and everything, is it? Because, no, it's not. And so that's when I started thinking about, you know, well, maybe if you, you know, did a, a you know, a procedural where, you know, the, the, the books took place in like the least populated county in the least populated state, um, it would kind of force you to deal more with character and place, which are always, for me, where the best writing is going to come from anyway. I, I've always, you know, kind of disliked that deus ex machina um, aspect of like having technology suddenly come in at the end of a book or a TV show. And suddenly we knew, you know, all along like that, because there was a DNA test that was done 17 years ago that uh, it just, it just doesn't seem particularly realistic. And so I decided yeah. that maybe I'd try something different. And, uh, and the cell phones are just a, a very emblematic of that. Um, you know, cell phones are fine. Like that, they're a wonderful thing like that, but you know, the difficulty with them being that, you know, they only work where they have service and, you know, in a place like Wyoming, you know, I always make the joke. I always say, look, if you want to take selfies with, you know, pronghorn antelope, you're more than welcome to bring your cell phone. But, you know, <laughs> if you're going to be out there somewhere, you know, where the action is, you know, you're probably not going to get much service with that cell phone. Now, when you're not riding, what is Craig Johnson, the the cowboy doing? during? Oh, the day? well, I mean, you know, it's a ranch. Like it, so there, there's always things to do. I mean, I, I always laugh whenever people ask me, what do you do in your spare time? And I'm like, I have a ranch. Like, yeah. There's there's no such thing as spare time. Like there's a, yeah. I, mean, I got to be honest. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how I can get this quarantine to go on for another three or four months, you know, so I can get everything <laughs> caught up, you know, here at the ranch. Like, but uh, yeah, yesterday I was, you know, rebuilding a carburetor on a tractor, you know, and getting it up and going like that so that I could grade out the ranch road like that because um, we had snow like that. We got more snow coming in here tonight. Um, you know, when I get through here, like I'll go down and, and feed the horses, like, you know, and get them all, you know, prepared for the day. Like, and, uh, you know, there's just always things to do. There's always things to take mm -hmm. care of. Um, and what's nice is also is that there's kind of a balance, you know, in, in between what it is that I do as far as the ranch is concerned, because that's very physical, you know, labor, um, where I spend a lot of time out of doors, um, as opposed to the writing, you know, process, which is me, you know, sitting at my writing desk. Um, with the computer and, uh, you know, doing, you know, research, reading and all of that. But uh, it, it's a nice balance. You know, I think that if I had to sit um, in front of the computer, you know, for 14 hours a day or, you know, even 10 hours a day or something, I think it would get a little bit tiresome. Look at, so I'm kind of lucky that I've got the ranch to kind of keep me sane. Yeah. So which, uh, what do you start first, writing or the fiscal labor? And, and what time of day does your day start? Well, the old joke is, is the animals won't wait. Like, you know, that's, that's for both ranching and farming. Like, and, uh, and it's true. Like, I mean, there are certain things that need to be done uh, first thing, you know, in the mornings. Like, I mean, uh, um, I've got, you know, we've got, you know, regular heat here in the house. Like, but I'm a big fan of uh, wood burning stoves. Like, and so by the time I get up in the morning, all the stoves in the house, you know, all kind of need to be taken care of. You know, wood needs to be brought in. I do about, you know, I, I block and, uh, and split and stack about 15 to 16 cords of wood um, every fall, like that, getting ready for the Wyoming winter. And uh, yeah, I mean, I could just, you know, turn the, you know, I, I could just turn the thermostat up, you know, and, and have the heat, you know, but uh, I don't know, there's a, there's a certain process that I like going through. I've got some friends who come up and help me um, on Wood Week, you know, where we, we get all of that done. And uh, um, it's, it's just a, a part of the process, you know, of, uh, of the seasons, which I think is another thing that's important, you know, to be in touch with. Um, I really enjoy, uh, you know, where it is that I live and what it is that I do. And, uh, and I think that that creeps into the writing. I think that that creeps into the environment, you know, and environmental aspects 
of the writing. Um, whenever I was first starting out, you know, there was a an author, you know, a lesser known mystery author, a Western mystery author you may not have heard of by the name of Tony Hillerman. And, oh, yeah, uh, I know him. He, he, he have you heard of him? Know, have you heard of him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was fortunate enough to have a, a short story that was published in the Cowboys and Indians magazine that won the uh, the, the Tony Hillerman Award. Like that. And, um, was that well, Old we, Indian Trick? Was it was Old Indian old, uh, Trick. It was the, one of the yeah. very first, it was the very first you know, short story that I wrote. And um, and one of the nice things was is I got to go have dinner with Tony Hillerman, and what was so wonderful with that was that um, I, I I got to have like a, a big dinner um, with Tony, and it was really kind of wonderful like that because I think I learned more in that four hours of uh, of, of you know of sitting and talking um, with Tony Hillerman than I may have gotten you know in, in an entire you know master's degree in writing. Um, he, and one of the things he was you know, very adamant about was, is that you need to have, um, some way to differentiate, you know, the books and to, to separate them, um, from each other so that you're not just on a treadmill where you're doing like, you know, the same type of books, the same type of stories and the same type of thing over and over and over again. And, um, you know, for me that became, you know, a way of introducing what I tend to refer to as the Vivaldi school. Um, and what that is, is I kind of divide the books up into seasons. Um, it's a seasonal aspect, you know, because, you know, I, when you're writing about you know, one place, one locale, you want to make sure that it doesn't become Mayberry to a certain extent. Not to say anything bad about, you know, Mayberry or since you're there in North Carolina, I want to make sure. I exactly. Get exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's different when you're writing like a television sitcom and when you're writing you right. know, a, a series of novels like that. And you want to make sure yeah. that those environs that they change, you know, that they change every time like that. And so, you know, for me. You know, July is very different from January, you know, in Wyoming. And so for me, it's very important you know, to be able to to have that differentiation for each novel. I think that's how you said that Walt has been able to live so long and not age too much, right? Because you read in seasons. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it takes me like yeah. four books to get through <laughs> one year of Walt's life. When, you, when you're, you're up. Yeah, uh, as opposed we're gonna, to me, like you know, but I'm four years older, like, but Walt's only like a year older, like it. So yeah, I've kind of yeah, slowed down his aging process. It's kind of helped. Uh, a couple of years ago at a writing conference uh, here in North Carolina, Looking Glass Rock Writing Conference, uh, I was in your fiction class. And uh, out of that class, uh, I wrote an article for Writer's Digest called The 47 Things That Craig Johnson Taught Me About Writing Fiction. We're probably going to cover a couple of those in, today. But one of the things you talked about was that you should make your writing space your own. Can you tell us about your writing space? Um, I mean, what I do is there's a section of the house over here above the garage that's a loft. I live in a log uh, house. I, I built the ranch myself. Like I had one of those fathers who thought you were slave labor until, you know, you escaped. Mm -hmm. like, and so I learned, you know, how to do basic construction. I learned how to do um, the electricity, the plumbing, all these different things. Like, and so I built the ranch myself, all the, the house, everything, the shops, the barns, everything. I built it all myself. And, uh, you know, what, what, what I do is I go up into that loft over here in the other section of the house, which is kind of isolated a little ways away from the rest of the house. And I go up there and I just write. That, that's what I do. I sit down at my desk and I write. And I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that, you know, you can get too precious, you know, with some things. Because I think the first couple of years that I was writing, of course, you know, no no libraries were asking me to, you know, come and and do events and literary festivals, all that kind of stuff. I was just some cowboy author from a town of 25 that nobody had ever heard of. And uh, then, you know, whenever the book started getting a little bit of traction and uh, people, thank goodness, you know, started paying a little bit of attention to them. And then, of course, you know, with the TV show and all the other things that happened and foreign tours and foreign publications and all of those things, 
um, things started changing a little bit, you know, and I started spending a lot more time out and on the road. And what I discovered was is that you can actually um, write, you know, when you're out on the road. You can write. I mean, I, I used to be anchored, you know, to my desk, you know, in my 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 cup of coffee and in my favorite mug, looking out my favorite window and all of that. And I kind of got past that to a certain extent. I'm to the point now where I can write in hotel rooms. I can write on on trains in France. I can, you know, it doesn't matter wherever I am on an airplane, whatever, you know, I can sit down and I can write. Yeah. So let's uh, let's set the stage here for our listeners uh, about Craig Johnson, the author. You write, I wouldn't say it's, you got mystery in your novels, but it's not the kind with the body on page one. But you're best known for your <laughs> your Sheriff Walt Longmire series. Uh-huh. The, the books are set in northern Wyoming, where Longmire is sheriff of the fictional county of, how do you pronounce it? Absaroka. Is that yeah, right? You Absaroka. got it. Good man. Okay. The series debuted in 2004 and as of 2019, you've written 15 novels, two novellas, and number of short stories, all featuring Walt Longmire and his gang of friends, right? Yeah. I have, I have. Yeah. So, so some of the novels have been, well, many of the novels have been New York Times bestsellers, and your book became the foundation for the hit series on Netflix. More about that in a moment. But uh, I would wonder, would you share with us, uh, you told us a story about how you uh, stumbled around as a would-be writer for about 10 years. It involved your interview of a local sheriff for your first book, and how you met him a few years later. Can you remember that story? Can you? you I, share do, I do. Okay. Like, I do. Yeah. It, it can sometimes be a lengthy story, so I'll try. Go to ahead. Do Go ahead. Digest uh, edited version uh, of sure. that. Um, one of the things was is when I got started, like at I, uh, I wrote uh, like the first two chapters of the cold dish, and um, they were not very good. Like even I could tell. You know, at that early <laughs> early stage um, in my writing career, listening to it, I was like, mm, that's just not that yeah. good. Something's <laughs> wrong here. And so I thought, okay, well, the problem is, is you don't know enough about rural sheriffing. You need to go in and talk, you know, to a rural sheriff and see how it is that they would process a homicide investigation. So I drove into Buffalo, the the 20 miles, you know, into the county seat here in Johnson County. And I got in there like that. And um, I, you know, uh, went into the sheriff's office. And you have to remember, this is before 9-11 or, you know, coronavirus or anything like that. So walked right in. Yeah, I, I marched right in like that. And there was, you know, there was no plexiglass wall. There was no computer room. There was a, a wooden counter was what there was. Like, And at the end of the counter, there was a guy's door was propped open and he had his boots up on his desk. And I knocked on the, you know, the, the door there, like or on the counter. And this boy goes, what? Like, and I said, hey, Sheriff, can I talk to you for a minute? This fellow by the name of Larry Kirkpatrick comes walking out. Like, and Larry been the sheriff there for I don't know how long. And, uh, and I said, hey, I'd like to talk to you. My name's Craig Johnson. I've got a little ranch out in U-Cross, and I'm writing a murder mystery about a Wyoming sheriff. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to let me talk to you about, you know, about this novel, maybe give it a read, like at these chapters that I've got and see what you think about it. And he said, well, I've never done anything like that before, and I don't know how much help I'm going to be. And I said, well, I'm not looking for literary criticism. I'm looking for like, you know, how it is you would process a homicide investigation with like limited resources and limited staff and all of this. And he said, well, yeah, sure. What the heck? I'll give it a try. And so I was so excited that I had solved all my problems that I went home and uh, added on to my house and, you know, and that then built a shop and built a barn and, you know, corrals and loading chutes and all these things like that. And then uh, came back in one day, like it was searching through the office, trying to find something like it and opened up the drawer and the third door down on the right-hand side, and there were the two lonely little chapters of the cold dish looking up at me. And almost 10 years had gone by. Mm-hmm. And I thought, 
Oh, uh, you know, I'm gonna have to go in if I'm if I'm gonna start this thing over again. I'm gonna have to go in and reintroduce myself to the sheriff all over again. And the problem was, is like you know, I mean, it was you know, I know he was still the sheriff. I hadn't spoken a word to him like that, but I knew he was still the sheriff because I'd voted for him three times. Like, and so you know, I thought this is gonna be embarrassing. Like, but I didn't have enough nerve to go in and do it. Like, and so one time I happened to be in town and I was putting uh, diesel in the ranch truck. Like, and I'm sitting there at the you know at the, at the Texaco station, and this you know police cruiser pulls in on the other side of the pump island. And this guy gets out and he's, you know, fueling up his cruiser and he's looking at me at, from across the pump island. Like, you know, and he drops his Ray-Bans down on his nose and he pops his hat back on his head and he's looking at me and he's like this, you know, and he's giving me this look that says, what did I arrest you for and when was it? Like, and so, <laughs> so I look at him, I thought this is going to be more embarrassing than I thought because it's going to be, you know, in, in public. And I stuck my hand out and I said, Sheriff Kirkpatrick, you're probably not going to remember me. And he goes, yeah, your name's Craig Johnson. You're the one that has the little ranch out near Ucross, and you're the one writing a murder mystery about a Wyoming sheriff. And I was like amazed. I mean, this was yeah. from a you know 10 minute conversation from almost 10 years previous. And I looked at him and I said, that is absolutely amazing. And he goes, yeah. Yeah, if you don't mind me saying so, this book's going kind of slow. And uh, <laughs> that's what I remembered. You're you're an awfully slow writer. <laughs> yeah, and, and I was. Uh, no like, so whenever anybody uh, starts telling me about like you know uh, uh, writer's block or something like that, I'm like, yeah. I don't want to hear that. I don't even want to hear yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what you call. That's what you call perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. Right, let's well, talk about. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Uh, your first book was The Cold Dish. It got you started. You had an idea. You'd stumbled across this court case of abuse where men got off. So you took that idea to the Cheyenne Nation and someone taking the men out one by one. And you're trying to figure out who would be most affected by this story. And you decided, I think it was going to be the sheriff. But you figured the sheriff couldn't do this alone. You had to put some people around him. And you wrote and you wrote and you wrote. And you came up with about 650 pages, as I recall you telling this story. And you said you put everything you had into that book because it was going to be your only one, right? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, when you're why did you? Out, you, know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you thought it was going to be your only one, but your agent said you're going to have to cut it, and you had to cut it what by half, three hundred pages or something? Yeah, about you know, like yeah. I think it was like about two hundred and fifty pages. I think I took yeah. out of. <laughs> yeah. So you you started putting these additional characters in there, and so you we start with Walt Longmire. You add, you know, Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about Henry, Henry Standing Bear. He's the representative of the Cheyenne Nation, right? Yeah, I mean, basically what I would, the, you know, I mean, that's, that's I think, uh, an essential part, you know, for any author that's that's really thinking about sitting down and uh, attempting, you know, to, to write a novel. Because attempting to write a novel in many ways is kind of like trying to climb a mountain. You know, you, you don't just like march out there, jump out of the Jeep and, you know, and start running up the mountain. I mean, you got to prepare. You've got to be ready, you know, Um and so one of the ways I think that you can prepare, you know, for writing a novel and is to um, do the schematic. Like okay, to do, I, people hate the, the, they hate the word, but it's, it's a, there's no other word for it. It's called an outline. Like, okay, you know, you need to sit down and think about what it is that this book is about, what it is that you're trying to say, um, take into consideration all of those things like that, and then put them down on paper, you know, because you think that you'll, you know, you'll, you'll remember all of these things and that you'll retain them, you know, in your head. But, you know, that's a big mountain you're trying to climb or that's a big ocean you're trying to cross like, at, you know, and in the midst of all of that climbing and all of that, you know, rowing, you know, you might forget why it was that you actually started off on this particular mission like that. And so you need to know um, as many of the guidelines in that map of your novel as you can possibly have. Um, it doesn't mean that you won't change them. It doesn't mean that, you know, that things won't happen along the way. 
um, or opportunities, you know, won't arise, you know, during the course of the process of writing. Um, but it, it's really good to have that roadmap just in case, just to have it in the glove box, just in case you decide. One, one of the big choices that you make, of course, like at, is, you know, who's going to populate this novel? You know, who's going to be telling the story? Um, and, you know, for me, that became pretty obvious, like at, that, you know, like I said, the person that was going to be, you know, you know, affected, you know, and, and be um, there, you know, for every part, you know, of, you know, this investigation was going to be that sheriff. And so I made the, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the dicey proposition of writing this entire book in first person. Um, so you, you're kind of in Walt's head, you know, for 400 and some pages. You know, you've really, you know, you, you really got to commit to that character at that point in time. But then you also have to look at the other characters that are going to populate your novel, too. In many ways, what a, one of the ways I describe that is by saying that um, it's kind of like, you know, conducting a choral group. It's almost, you know, as if... You know, you, you have to have specific voices, you know, for specific passages or specific pieces of information like that or, you know, anything along those lines. I mean, one character can't bring everything to the story. So you need to populate that novel with other characters, you know, that are going to bring their strengths and their weaknesses and their passions, you know, and their desires like at, um, uh, to, you know, to the story, too. And, uh, you know, I knew that the book that I was writing, The Cold Dish, you know, obviously was uh, had a lot to do about. Um, the two different societies that make up a lot of what is the high plains, you know, and that's the mainstream, you know, white society, the white culture, like, and then also the native culture, like, I mean, just to the north of me across the border in Montana um, are two of the largest, you know, uh, uh, reservations, you know, in the country, the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation. And they're incredible people. Like, and I knew that, you know, from the very first couple of sentences that those characters, you know, were going to have to be represented, you know, very well. Like, and so that meant that there was going to have to be a very strong sort of native um, voice, you know, in addition to Walt's voice um, as this white sheriff, you know, in a predominantly, you know, white community in a white county. Um, and I think it was, you know, it was probably, you know, some some good choices that I made along the way to write that first novel that, as you said, was simply going to be a standalone novel. It was going to be just a, a, a singular novel was all it was. I mean, I don't I don't have to go into like, you know, the uh, the, the 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 kind of uh, uh, insecurities that you have as a first time author, you know, writing without, you know, any kind of, you know, contract or agent or publisher or editors or anything like that. You're basically out there treading water, you know, in the middle of the ocean, you know, mm -hmm. and just, you know, seeing how far you can get. And so I thought, you know, boy, if I could get one book published, that would be just the most amazing thing that could ever possibly happen. It never dawned on me, you know, in a million years to think that, you know, that it might be good enough that, you know, the publisher or the readership or anyone might actually consider turning it into a, a series, you know, where people would um, you know, really care about these characters and really want to know about these characters and, um, and, and be able to continue on with them. Um, but some of the choices that I made, you know, very early on with that first novel made that possible. Exactly. And then you've got, uh, Lucian, one of my favorite characters and Vic, one of my other favorite characters. <laughs> I, I would like to know how you came up with Lucian and Vic, because Vic is the undersheriff. And, and when Walt doesn't talk much, Vic takes up the extra space, you know, <laughs> and she does it with what you say is the urban tongue. I think, you know, she she's friends. Yeah. Talk about Vic and Lucian, if you would. You know, each one of those voices is there, you know, for a very specific reason, you know, to provide something, you know, to the storyline like that, you know, perhaps something that maybe, you know, Walt can't provide for us. 
And, um, you know, once again, it's that choral group. Look at, you know, we got the sopranos and the, 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 you know, the, the basses, you know, and all of these different things, the baritones and whatever. And, you know, they've all got to be there for a specific reason. Lucian's the former sheriff who's kind of the mentor of Walt, for those who don't know. He, he's kind of a tie back, you know, to the previous period of law enforcement, you know, there in Absaroka County. And so, you know, I knew that, you know, that, uh, that, that even with the case that I worked on um, in the cold dish, you know, that I needed to have a, a connection to the past. I needed to have something that could draw, you know, where Walt could go and ask questions like that about previous cases, about histories that maybe were before his time period, you know, certainly before his time period as a sheriff. Um, and so Lucian was going to provide that. Like the other thing is, is Lucian was going to provide something of a sounding board, you know, for Walt. I mean, I needed somebody who had maybe more experience, you know, maybe uh, even though different types of experience, you know, than, than what Walt has like that. But, uh, you know, where Walt could bounce these things off of, you know, during those chess games at the home for assisted living, you know, on Tuesday nights. Like, that, I mean, it made for an opportunity um, for him to, you know, kind of involve himself like into a more, you know, of an intellectual aspect of these cases, like had to kind of do, you know, a little bit of uh, brain thumping as far as that kind of thing is concerned. Like that. And, uh, and, and Walt needed a mentor, you know, Walt needed uh, somebody who taught him um, and to have that guy still around, like that, to have that, uh, that ability, you know, for him to still be there, you know, seemed to me uh, kind of essential to the whole process because, you know, Walt is a, is a, is a current law enforcement official. Like that. And so he deals with a lot of the current situations um, to even to a certain extent, you know, the technology and a lot of the other stuff. Whereas Lucian is like, you know, more from the old school. Like, I mean, you know, whenever he sits down and talks with Lucian, it's almost as if he's sitting down and talking to somebody who knew Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and, and all of these things. Like, yeah. And, and uh, yeah. that, that it gives you a lifeline into that, you know, that kind of epic historic um, West that I think, you know, is still very much alive, you know, in our part of the world. Also the humor. Um, you know, yeah, Lucian yeah. can get away, you know, with saying things that, you know, Walt would never say in a million years. Um, you know, we've all, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, Thanksgiving dinner with that uncle, that one uncle that, you know, will say things that nobody else in the family will say. Well, that's, that's Lucian to a T. Um, also, you know, I have to be honest and say, like, the character of Lucian is based off of my father. Um, oh, well. he's, uh, a lot of that voice, you know, tends to come, you know, from, uh, from my father who uh, had a, a marvelous sense of humor like that and uh and uh, and it was extraordinarily politically incorrect like uh, you know on a regular basis like that. and so it gives me the opportunity to have that voice in there like that. and uh and that's also you know kind of an essential part of like you know what I was talking about as far as the choral group thing is concerned in that you know whenever I'm talking to writing students I'm always explaining to them that you know well you know you're going to get basically one chance to describe a character one time you don't get to describe that character every time they walk in the room. You got one shot at that, okay? But that character is going to speak all the way through the novel, okay? And so it's almost more important for their voice to be, um, I guess, more uh, developed, you know, and more specific than their physical looks, you know, because once you describe them to us, we're going to get an image in our head. Um, as to what you know, their their visual looks are going to be. I think most of the time, I, I think authors get a little bit too carried away and try and be too specific uh, about the way that a character looks. Just give us a couple of dominoes knocked over, you know, to give us the idea of what that character looks like. Now, do the voice. That voice yeah. has to be very, very specific 
to tell us, you know, who they are, what they are, what's their sense of humor. You know, I mean, that's that's the other thing is, is like, you know, a lot of people will ask me, they'll say, you know, how do you get people to like your characters? How do you get readers to invest in your characters? And I'm always like, well, who do you like spending time with? You like spending time with people that make you laugh. Well, you know, that give your characters a sense of humor, you know, and uh, don't give them all the same sense of humor. I mean, you see that a lot of times, you know, Um, make sure that they have a very specific sense of humor. I mean, you mentioned Henry, who has a very dry native sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Lucian, who has a very, you know, uh, out of time, politically incorrect sense of humor, Mm -hmm. which brings me to another one of your favorite characters, Victoria Moretti, like that, who's kind of a transplant. Um, from Philadelphia like that. And so she was very important in the sense that, you know, with all of these books, you know, the majority of the characters are all, you know, from the, you know, the frontier area of Montana, Wyoming. That's where, you know, all of the characters are from, including Walt and everybody else just about. And so, you know, that's, that's all right like that. But then if all of those characters are all from the same place and they all know the area extraordinarily well, um, I might not have the opportunity to convey information that I desperately need to convey to the reader who is not from, you know, Wyoming and Montana. And so I think that's something to take into consideration whenever you're writing to always try and put at least one innocent in there that doesn't know what's going on. Um, Whatever the context, you know, might be, you know, uh, if you're writing a spy novel, one of my absolute favorites is James Grady's uh, six days of the condor. Um, And what he uses is a, 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 a guy who is like basically reads books, you know, he, that's what he does. Like, and so um, he's not a field agent like that. And so, you know, we get to learn a lot um, about, you know, the intelligence agencies and all these things by the things that he discovers along the way. Well, Vic is in many ways, you know, my innocent, you know, she's from Philadelphia. She's from a big city. She's from back East. Um, she doesn't know, you know, a lot of the stuff that people kind of take for granted um, in this area. And so it's kind of a nice opportunity to have her there to be able to ask the questions that maybe the reader might ask. Um, she also has a very definitive voice. You know, she has a very um, sarcastic, Eastern, profane uh, kind yeah. of uh, uh, voice, you know, that, that's very, very different, you know, from uh, the rest of the characters. I mean, Walt, you know, is, is, is being extreme when he says heck or darn or, you know, damn or something like that. Vic goes way past that like that and, and uses some very, uh, uh, some very wild language like that, but, but you know, sometimes. But, it's but she also she she also pushes him to reconsider his own trajectory at times. Oh yeah, as well. absolutely. Yeah. She pushes yeah. him like that to such a great extent, like that, and that's you know one of the joys, you know, of mm-hmm. uh, of writing a series like that is um, to to try and push those characters, you know, to try and do something different with those characters and continue to do something with those characters. I mean, we've all you know picked up you know th- that was one of the things that worried me you know the worst. Um, whenever it was is that, you know, when I started this as a series like that, because I started thinking, I don't want to write the same book, you know, over and over again, 35 times. I don't want to do that. Um, and so, you know, I started thinking about it. And I thought, well, the, the series that I really enjoy and the series that I, you know, that I really continue reading like that um, are the ones where, you know, the characters change, you know, the characters evolve, you know, things happen with those characters. And, uh, you know, Tony Hillerman was one that I like to mention, you know, obviously, you know, um, you know, James Lee Burke is another that I absolutely love and adore, you know, his books. Um, I could go on and on about all the authors that, that do this like that. But one of the things you have to be able to do is evolve those characters and have them change. On this idea, these last three books, I read The Western Star, a lot of history on a train. We learn about Lucian's past. Depth of Winter came next. Waltz Alone in Mexico battling 
a drug cartel, which is much different than we've seen before. And then Land of Wolves, you're back in the U.S. with a bleak U.S. landscape, wolves and murder, all three very different landscapes, time periods. So can you talk about the different formats of those last three books and the challenges you had in going to these different locations? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the, the, I guess, you know, one of the executive aspects of like, you know, the last three books has been this running battle that Walt's had, you know, with Tomas Bedard. Um, this, uh, the, he's uh, a drug kingpin from down in Mexico, look at the, the difficulties that he's had. And that actually started out in the ninth book, A Serpent's Tooth, which was, you know, like seven years ago. And so, you know, that, that situation has been developing, you know, over the years. Um, when, and I knew it was going to have to come to a head at some point in time. And, you know, the, the idea that I had was that it was, um, it was going to be kind of epic. Uh, this this uh, this 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 battle between good and evil. This was really going to be one of the toughest situations physically that Walt was ever going to have to face. And, you're, talking about, you're talking about depth of winter now. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but but to get to depth of winter, I really kind of had to. Um, I, I really had to get to it. You know, I, okay, I had to get yeah. the momentum going to the point. And there was no way that I could get that done in one novel. Um, I would be going back to you know the cold dish and trying to do you know, an 800 page novel, you know, to try and encompass all of that in one. Yeah. And so the trick became, you know, trying to find out what the backstory was on this individual like that, that makes it possible for Bedard to get at Wald, um, which was, you know, what it is that he's trying to do. He was, he was not, he was not very bright the first time that he did it because he did it in Wyoming, you know, well, that's where, why, why Walt has, you know, all of his resources, he has all of his backup. He has all of those things. And so I knew he wasn't going to be, he was going to be a lot smarter the next time around. This time he was not going to take Walt on in Wyoming. He was going to take him on in his home turf in Northern Mexico, you know, where the drug cartels are, um, which is a landscape that's, you know, so, you know, unbelievably uh, hideous what some of those individuals are doing down there. Like that, that um, he would be right at home. Like, and Walt would not be, Walt would be in a situation where, um, it would be almost as if he were going back to Vietnam. It, it, it's a war, is the way Henry describes it. He says, you're not going down there as a police action. You're going into a war again, and you need to go find that guy that you were in Vietnam and dig him back out of the mothballs like that, and uh, get him front and center because you're going to need him to survive. Mm-hmm. And Walt takes his advice. He does that. you know. But then the effects that it has on Walt, both physically and psychologically, um, are the resonance that kind of make up Land of Wolves, like that when Walt makes it back, you know, he, he's not all the way back, you know, and that's, that's the kind of things that you do have to deal with, you know, with post-traumatic stress disorder, or anytime you go through any kind of like, you know, an epic, you know, uh, um, passage, you know, in your life where something happens, you know, and you have to fight and claw your way through, um, it's kind of hard to get back to that, you know, that gentle place where you started before. Um, and so that was an arc and a trajectory that I knew, like at the bedrock had to be laid, um, with Western Star, um, and it did provide me with a, a nice opportunity. Like I had to go back, you know, and do a, a kind of an homage, you know, to uh, um, to Agatha Christie, like that, and right. uh, Murder, on, Murder yeah. on the Orient Express, like yeah. that, you know, to, to have this whole train full of sheriffs, you know, going across yeah. Wyoming and back, and a murder takes yeah. place. Of course, you know, there's no way, like it. So, of course, whenever Walt goes through the train depot, he picks up a paperback, and what does he pick up? <laughs> Murder yeah, on the Orient Express. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then it provided a lot of options like that, and a lot of challenges like that, because whenever you're going to try and do something like that, 
um, you know, you have to look at the seminal work. Like, you know, and Agatha Christie was a pretty fantastic mystery writer, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. And so to try and take on one of her plot lines and try and readjust it a little bit and redo it, um, that was a challenge. Okay, and it was a, a joy. I had a really great time writing it. And a lot of that came from, you know, the things that you mentioned right there as far as like taking Walt back in time to where, you know, here you've got a train full of sheriffs with one deputy. Well, the one deputy is Walt. You know, he's the one that's got to tell us the story. So he's kind of the low man on the totem pole, you know, in the telling of this story. And uh, and it finally gets you to the point where, you know, we set this catalyst off um, where Bedard actually takes, you know, uh, Katie, you know, Walt's daughter uh, to Mexico. And he knows that, you know, Walt's going to have to come after her. There is no choice. You know, this, this battle is on. You know, there's no choice at all. Yeah. And then uh, Depth of Winter definitely was, you know, a um, a different kind of book. Um, it was a thriller, you know, it's a, it, there's no, there's no question about, you know, like, you know, who done it or what done it or why done it or anything like that. It's all pretty evident by the time you get to yeah. the end of Western star. And then the question becomes, you know, what's Walt going to do and how much of his humanity is going to be left, you know, uh, when he finally, you know, scrapes through this, um, he's going to have to lower himself down into that gutter and he's going to have to have to play dirty like that. And uh, mm. how far will he go? What will he be willing to do? Um, I had, you know, some, some and, and there was a lot more, it was certainly the most violent book, you know, that I've written. Um, but trying to write a cozy, you know, in the drug cartels of Northern Mexico really would have been kind of you know, disingenuous. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I knew that that book was going to be a lot more violent than any of the books that I'd ever done before. And I had a couple of readers who wrote me and said, you know, that was a little unbelievable and all this. And all I could think was, you you need to get on the internet, you know, or you need to pick up some of those, you know, newspapers out of Mexico and see the things that are going on down there and the things that are happening like that. And uh, you know, these poor people are just trying to live their lives like that, and uh, and they're confronted with you know some individuals that you know that make some of you know Shakespeare's bad guys, you know, look like Dudley Do Right. And uh, mm -hmm. and so you know, it was another different kind of book again, like that to write, and uh, and it took its toll, you know, on Walt you know, without the resources that he normally had, you know, here in Wyoming. And then, like I said, you know, then with, uh, with Land of Wolves, you know, it was an attempt to try and get Walt back on a, a steady footing, you know, once again. And uh, he's, he's still working on it. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying my interview with Craig Johnson. I really had a good time with this, and it's not over yet. We've got more for you to come today. Uh, we're going to have some discussion with Craig Johnson about his next book, which is called The Next to Last Stand. It's uh, coming out in September we're also going to talk about the Netflix series and him being on the set and a cameo role that he had. Talk about the possibility of a Longmire movie. And we're going to do some writing life questions too. Dive into some of those 47 things that Craig Johnson taught me about writing. Before we do that, I'd like to tell you about the authors that are coming in season six. We have a really great lineup. Uh, I enjoyed spending time with these authors, reading their books, talking to them about their books and their writing lives. And, uh, so let's get to it. Uh, on May 5th, we've got Tom Hanchett. Uh, that was a live event we did at Poplar Tapas, our first dinner on the podcast. Uh, Tom's book is Sorting Out the New South City, Race, Class, and Urban Development, Charlotte, 1875 to 1975, second edition. The New York Times says that Tom Hanchett's Sorting Out the New South City discovers surprising things about the developments of southern cities. Southern Culture says of the book, this is a Southern story of the emergence of mercantile, industrial banking, and real estate entrepreneurs and how they shaped a city in an era of black disenfranchisement, Jim Crow, and the waning political power of white workers. 
Hanchett provides a broad context for understanding that the shape of our cities is far from happenstance. The re-release of the book services a call for cities not to forget their past as they chart their future. Uh, this is a great, uh, a great read and discussion about uh, Charlotte over the years, so don't miss it on May 5th. Coming on May 12th, we have Sarah Archer and her book, uh, The Plus One. Uh, it's a novel about what happens when a female robotics engineer who can't find a date to her sister's wedding to pacify the unrelenting pressure by her mother to get a man decides to build her own date, the perfect man for her. Dating is hard, and apparently being dateless at your perfect sister's wedding is even harder, which is why when Kelly couldn't find Mr. Wright, she built him. Renee Carlino, author of Blind Kiss, calls it simply unputdownable, a story full of laughter and tears. Join us with Sarah Archer on May 12th. On May 19th, we get patriotic here in Mecklenburg County. Uh, we have Scott Seifert on the show. He's the author of the first Declaration of Independence, question mark, the disputed history of the Mecklenburg Declaration of May 20, 1775. We explore the facts behind the controversy as to whether Mecklenburg County was first to declare independence from Great Britain. Ken Burns, documentary filmmaker, says, Scott Seifert has rescued and brought vividly to life a little-known story of our revolutionary past and the urgent need of our ancestors for freedom. Join us during Mech Deck Week on May 19th to find out the truth about what happened on May 20th, 1775. On May 26th, we have a uh, live podcast episode we recorded at Main Street Books in Davidson, North Carolina. Uh, we meet Cynthia Newberry Martin, author of Tidal Flats. It's a novel where marriage is at the heart of the story and where conflicting choices could undermine the union. Rebecca Mackay, author of The Great Believer, says that Cynthia Newberry Martin is a tremendous writer with a Wolfian talent for taking the full measure of small moments. And Joshua Moore, author of Sirens in Damascus, aptly notes that the novel swirls with light and love. Join us for this love story. Uh, on May 26th with author Cynthia Newberry-Martin. On June 2nd, we have George Hovis on the show. He's the author of The Skin Artist, an edgy story set in the shadows of the shiny banking city we know as Charlotte, North Carolina. Fred Chappell, author and winner of the North Carolina Award for Literature, says that Hovis displays a world we know and try to turn our gaze from, but the story is too powerful, and we readers watch hypnotized as the descent gathers friends, lovers, and families into its vortex. Can such dark passages lead to hope? Join us on June 2nd for this uh, interesting look at Charlotte uh, in a time when there were such landmarks as the Double Door Inn and when uh, Bank of America was known as Nation's Bank. Uh, you'll find yourself in the parts of Charlotte you might not have visited and then contrasted with that uh, Scenes from Gaston County. On June 9th, we have some poetry and more Charlotte history with uh, author Mary Kratt. Uh, she's the author of the poetry collection Watch Where You Walk and the history book Charlotte, North Carolina, Brief History and many other books. Fred Chapel, former North Carolina Poet Laureate, says of Watch Where You Walk that it is clean line, economical, pointed, and soulful and that these lyrics strike to the heart of things immediately then linger with musical suggestion in the mind. Mary's book, Charlotte, North Carolina, A Brief History, 
is an example of one curious search into Charlotte's history, which is filled with interesting stories and pictures, too. Join us on June 9th for this engaging episode of Poetry in Charlotte History. On June 16th, we meet Jack Grossman, author of Child of the Forest. It's a highly acclaimed nonfiction book about a young girl's fight for life following the Nazi invasion of her small town in eastern Poland. The book won the 2019 Best Indie Book Award in the nonfiction category, an IBPA Benjamin Franklin Silver Award, was a finalist in the International Book Awards. Jack was nominated as Author of the Year by the Artists Music Guild Heritage Awards and has spoken widely to students and adults about this story. One reader calls the book a must-read, an incredibly riveting true story of a young girl's tenacity to survive, saying we can all learn something from Charlene Perlmutter Schiff. Join us on June 16th for this inspirational book about a young girl's fight to survive. On June 23rd, uh, Megan Miranda joins us. Uh, she is a New York Times bestselling author whose latest book is The Girl from Widow Hills. Uh, it releases uh, the day of our episode on June 23rd, 2020. Ariel Stein, bestselling author of Goosebumps and Fear Street, says this of the book, Sleepwalking is Creepy. You're asleep, but you're walking through the night like the living dead. I knew when I started The Girl from Widow Hills I was in for some shivers, but I had no idea the terrors that were in store. Megan is the New York Times bestselling author of All the Missing Girls, The Perfect Stranger, and The Last House Guest. She's written several books for young adults, including The Safest Lies, Fragments of the Lost, and Come Find Me. Join us on June 23rd for the release of her new book and prepare uh, for some twists and turns and a very bumpy ride. On June 30th, we meet author Mark Perez. He's the author of the book and the podcast by the same name on life and meaning. It's a collection of 100 essays inspired by the 100 guests who appeared on the podcast he hosted for 100 continuous weeks between 2017 and 2019. Guests who appeared on the podcast and who are featured in the essays include artists, writers, philosophers, civic leaders, consultants, executives, entrepreneurs, religious leaders, innovators, creators, and more. Mark talked with them about their work, life, and higher purposes because, as he says, the heart of the project was the notion that we all want to know and be known. Mark saw the podcast as an art installation, a gallery of portraits of people making a difference in the world. The book is a gallery, too, with stunning black and white photos of the guests and essays about what makes their hopes and dreams and lives special. Join us on June 30 as I put the question to Mark Perez about the meaning of life. On July 7th, we have Kat Warren, author of What the Dog Knows, Scent, Science, and the Amazing Ways Dogs Perceive the World, a New York Times bestseller. Rebecca Sklut. The New York Times bestselling book review says, What the Dog Knows is a fascinating, deeply reported journey into scent, death, forensics, and the amazing things dogs can do with their noses, sniffing out graves, truffles, bed bugs, maybe even cancer. But it's also a moving story of how one woman transformed her troubled dog into a loving companion and an asset to society, all while stumbling on the beauty of life and their searches for death. Join us on July 7th when I talk to Cat Warren about what it means to work with a cadaver dog and how that dog impacted her own life. On July 14th, uh, Kimberly Motley joins the show. 
Kimberly is the author of the book Lawless, which recounts her unrelenting fight for justice in one of the world's most dangerous places. This is an extraordinary story of a U.S. woman who became the first foreign lawyer to practice in Afghanistan. The book is a memoir, but it also has the feel of a page-turning suspense novel where Kimberly Motley faces one unique, difficult, and dangerous legal case after another. Through sheer force of personality, ingenuity, and perseverance, Kimberly's legal work swiftly morphed into a personal mission to bring justice to the defenseless and voiceless. Join us on July 14th to learn about this international lawyer who is also Mrs. Wisconsin of 2004. She's got a very interesting story to tell, and she's not through fighting for justice just yet. On July 21st, uh, author Megan Lucas uh, joins us. She is the author of Songbirds and Stray Dogs. Step Post, columnist with Lit Reactor, says of the book, quite possibly my favorite debut novel of the year. Songbirds and Stray Dogs has everything I love about Southern fiction. Atmosphere, a deep attention to place, and most importantly, tough, unforgettable characters spearheaded by the indomitable Jolene. Megan Lucas is the very definition of a badass female grit-lit author. Join us on July 21st when Megan and I break down her book, find out about Jolene, and explore Jolene's journey from the coast of South Carolina to the mountains of North Carolina. On July 28th, we meet uh, Vernon Glenn. Vernon is the author of Friday Calls, a Southern novel, which is set in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, mostly on a sinful Friday night. Kirkus Reviews describes Glenn's prose as full of color and motion and says that Friday Calls is a lyrical Southern tale of rippling effects. When things go wrong on a Friday night on both sides of the tracks and on the tracks themselves, lives change quickly and the law comes to collect. Join us on July 28th when we explore this novel, which has a lot of truth built into it. Vernon is a lawyer himself. We have a good time talking about the law and about uh, this true story that makes its way into his southern novel. Uh, And finally, last but not least, uh, in season six, uh, on August 4th, we have our 14th uh, episode with Robert Inman. Uh, His latest book is The Governor's Lady. Uh, He's written a number of novels. Library Journal says of The Governor's Lady that Inman beautifully blends old-fashioned southern storytelling with tense political drama. Readers with an interest in American politics, fierce women, or family relationships will enjoy this novel, whose strongly developed characters and plot suspense will keep them from putting this book down until the very last page. D.G. Martin, host of North Carolina's Book Watch on UNC TV, says it's a terrific story with a cast of unusual characters. And Lee Smith, author of Mrs. Darcy and the Blue-Eyed Stranger, says that Robert Inman hits the ground running and keeps up the pace in this suspenseful page-turner, which takes us behind the headlines as a southern governor's wife assumes the office herself so he can run for president. The real question is, how does Robert Inman know so much about state politics, public marriages, and human nature? And how did he come up with such believable characters, not only the ambitious governors of plucky, likable wife, but also the fascinating hangers-on who attach themselves to any rising political figure? The governor's lady, a heady mix of sex and sexism, politics and greed, trust and lack thereof is as timely as the morning's news. Join us on August 4th for the uh, final episode of season six with Robert Inman when we talk about this uh, book filled with political intrigue 
the inspiration for which uh, is Alabama politics, because Bob Emma was covering uh, George Wallace's run for president when George Wallace's wife was elected governor of Alabama. So that's it for uh, season six. We've got a lot of great uh, authors lined up for that season, uh, but we've also got more. We've got uh, the Under the Covers episodes that will release on Fridays. Uh, our seasons uh, run on Tuesdays. They're a long-form show. Uh, more readings, a little bit more discussion with the author, about an hour in length. But our Under the Cover show uh, is a bit shorter. It's 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, do some of the same things. We we talk with the authors about their books. Uh, we have them uh, read a passage. and We do a little writing life. But uh, for that reason, we'll make this uh, introduction to what's coming there a little quicker as well. We got uh, we got some authors lined up for May and June already. Uh, already have recorded with them. Uh, May 1st, Jan Knotson, The Id Paradox. The Id Paradox is the story of three friends, Jake, Artie, and Connors, whose bond was forged during an almost fatal canoe trip in which only Artie's genius for survival kept them alive. It follows their ill-fated attempt to pass Artie's family across the border, his capture by a drug cartel, and Jake and Connor's harrowing rescue attempt from a Mexican prison and then from the prison of madness. On May 8th, we have Rachel Brooks with her book, Beads, a memoir about falling apart and putting yourself back together again. It's a true life story of a rape survivor. Through both her writing and speaking engagements, Rachel's goal is to raise awareness and provide support for survivors and victims of assault as well as generally offer tips and best practices for making it to the other side of trauma. On May 15th, we have Michael Crowley with his collection, Any Other Place. It's a collection of short stories about everyday life, and the story Slope, which is featured on the show, a failed relationship, forces a man to confront the echoes of his past and the silence of his future. On May 22nd, Donna Love Wallace joins us with her poetry book, Between the Stones. One in eight women will experience invasive breast cancer sometime during their life. With candor and a full range of emotion, Wallace navigates her way in poetry through disparate places and the people that occupy them. The biopsy suite, the grocery store, her closet, and a tattoo parlor 350 miles from home. On May 29th, we meet Caleb Johnson, author of Treeborn. This novel, set in a small southern town, was an honorable mention for the Southern Book Prize and long-listed for the Crook's Corner Book Prize. It's an exploration of how the past gets mixed up in thoughts of the future, and how home is a story as much as a place. On June 5th, John Gertie joins us. John has written and illustrated a book called Alphabone Orchestra. It's a creative and wildly illustrated book designed to help children get excited about music while offering adults some tidbits of music education with grace notes sprinkled throughout. On June 12th, we meet Betsy Mack. Uh, she's the author of Midreach. It's a work of nonfiction written with early career professionals in mind. It's meant to inspire, empower, and celebrate failing while in the midst of success. It highlights the importance of fostering relationships, owning mistakes, and celebrating successes, even the small ones. On June 19th, Tracy Barton Barrett joins us. She's the author of Buried Deep in Our Hearts. It's a novel that follows three families in their lives together with their furry family members. When a cherished animal dies, they lead their community in coming together to support and honor their beloved. And then the last uh, episode under the covers in June will be June 26th. Nicole Ayers, she's the author of 
the Love Notes to My Body collection. Love Notes to My Body is a whimsically illustrated celebration of the author's body, while Love Letters to My Body is a collection of personal essays that digs into the grittier side of her journey to accept herself. Writing Your Way to Self-Love is a guided journal experience for people who feel called to write their own love notes to their bodies. And that's it for the next two months under the covers. We've got uh, May and June uh, locked up. We've got uh, season six uh, of 14 great authors as well. So a lot of good content uh, for you to have available to you as you are looking for something to listen to on your your next commute or you're working out or just walking through the neighborhood or, or whatever. So with that, I'd like to get back to Craig Johnson. How about you? Yeah, so... Can you talk at all about uh, Next to Last Stand? That's your next novel that's coming out. It, it continues the series with Walt and uh, his, uh, his his band of supporters. Uh, of course, he didn't have many supporters in in uh, the book where he's in Mexico because he was right. all alone for the most part. Right. But, then he, but then he comes back in Land of Wolves and he's back together. But now we got Next to Last Stand. It almost sounds like the series getting close to you know, next to last stand. <laughs> We're not, we don't just have two books left, do we? Craig? <laughs> no, 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 no not at all. Not at all. The next to last stand, uh, has to do with, uh, there's actually a soldier like uh, they, we have the soldier and sailors home here, uh, just outside of Buffalo. Um, it's the Wyoming veterans home. And, uh, one of my favorite things to do like it is whenever I'm driving, going up to the mountains, um, they're always the guys sitting out there in front of the sign in their wheelchairs and they wave. They just wave at the traffic just to say hi. And I've stopped in and talked to those guys over the years, you know, and there's always a, you know, whenever some of them pass away, like at some of the newer ones come in, like that. And so um, yeah, I just thought, you know, it'd be an interesting thing to do to have them be involved um, in a storyline. So, of course, I asked, you know, up at the soldier and sailor's home, I said, do you guys ever have any interaction with the sheriff's department? And Carol, you know, the woman in charge up there said, you know, well, yeah, we do. Like that, you know, whenever one of the veterans passes away, sometimes we'll open up you know, a locker, you know, and find, you know, armaments or ammunition or things like that, that we didn't know was there. And so we have to call up somebody from the sheriff's department, either the sheriff or a deputy or somebody will come up and, you know, take those items, you know, and, and take them away for secure purposes. And, uh, and it started me thinking like that, you know, well, what if one of these guys passed away and, um, you know, Walt gets a call and goes up there and they open up this foot locker and in the foot locker is a four shine shoe box full of hundred dollar bills. So there's a million dollars in Forsheim, uh, in a Forsheim shoe box and a little piece of a painting. And they can't figure out where it comes from or anything. Like that. And of course, you know, as the story goes, yeah. we start discovering that just maybe that painting didn't get destroyed in 1946 in Fort Bliss, yeah. Texas. And it kind of throws Walt into the art world, which is something that he's never had to deal with before. And uh, like I said, that's something you're always looking to do is kind of stretch your characters a little bit. And I imagine Vic's going to have a few things to say about that, too. Oh, before. boy, does she ever. <laughs> uh, well, so before we talk about a few of my favorite 47 things you taught me, I want to talk quickly about the Netflix series and Longmire Days. So ha- have you been on the set while they were filming? Have you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Numerous times. Can you, can you talk about that? Was it surreal to be there while this is going on? It is. It's, you know, people always ask, they always say, well, what's it like to see, you know, your characters and what's it like to, uh, to have lines, you know, from your books, you know, coming out of like actors mouths. And the only way that I can describe it is it's kind of like having a, a, a house plant in your home for like eight years and then coming down to have a cup of coffee one morning and it starts talking to you. That's the only way that I can describe it. It's, it's very yeah. surreal. It's very wonderful. You know, don't get me wrong. Like it's, it's a wonderful thing. But it's a little weird, you know, kind of at the same time, too, I have to admit. 
Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's been interesting. Like I was, I was a creative consultant on the show. Um, and also it was just a remarkable group of people. I mean, the producers and directors, um, the actors, you know, the crew, everybody, um, were just, you know, extraordinarily welcoming and, um, um, very good at what they did. You know, one of the things mm -hmm. I've discovered that, you know, if in Hollywood, the better quality of, you know, it's, it's like any other line of business. You try and get the best people that you can. And, you know, we were very, very fortunate that the producers that, that we got, the directors, the actors, crew, everybody were like just really top of the line people. And um, they were very accommodating. Like, at, and it was uh, wonderful to be a part of that, you know, on a regular basis, like at, even to the point where they finally talked me into doing a little cameo role in the sixth season. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember what that role was. Did I miss that? Where, where I, were I, you? I don't know. It was that memorable of a performance. Are you <laughs> telling me that Landon that who, you forgot who were you? already? <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back and look at that again. Uh, what was your part? I, I, actually, I actually played a, uh, a mortician. I, I a played mortician. a mortician in a uh, in a funeral. You were too out of character. I couldn't. Yeah, it was it was kind of tough for me. Like, but uh, it was good yeah. because. Um, I, I can't remember. I, I think I, I don't think I had any lines at all. They were smart <laughs> enough to make my character have no lines whatsoever. It was just acting, yeah. reacting, and all of this. And uh, okay. and, and and Robert Taylor had a very good time at my expense. You know, while I was trying to do this. <laughs> And, yeah, uh, and Robert, Robert Taylor plays uh, Walt Longmire, and uh, and Lou Diamond Phillips uh, plays Henry Standing Bear, and he really does have the cadence down, does he? Oh not? yeah, for absolutely. the pause and and the way he speaks. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, come and, you know, Lou's played those characters. He's played native characters, you know, his whole career because he's part native. Um, but you know, what's wonderful about Lou is is, and what's wonderful about the entire cast, I have to admit, is they're extraordinarily smart. Um, I don't know if everybody knows it or not, like, but not everybody in Hollywood is really smart. And uh, and these the, the group that we got were just extraordinarily intelligent. Like, they're, they're really well read, um, absolutely marvelous, intuitive abilities. Like, and and Lou is you know one of the standards for that. I have to admit, you know, he um, went out when he heard that this this role was up. Like, he ran out and bought the first three novels um, in the series and read them over one weekend. And came in like that, and uh, whenever he auditioned, he's the one that took the contractions out in the script. Um, cool. And they said yeah. that's really great. Look, and he's like, "Thank you." <laughs> there was one scene where he picks he picks up the phone at the Red Pony Bar and Grill, and he uses the signature line that Henry always uses in the books, where he says, "You know, Red Pony Bar and Grill and continual soiree." And the director looked at him and said, that's really good. Keep that. And Lou was like, I will. Um, <laughs> but, but he's actually one of the guys that uh, he, he, I actually send him the books now because he's become kind of my contraction um, artist. Like, at, you know, he goes through the book okay. and looks for any contractions, you know, that Henry might have anywhere in there. Like, and, uh, and still reads the books to this day, which is, is wonderful. Yeah, that's great. And one of the things uh, you might pick up on more than us, I mean, I think there are a lot of similarities uh, clearly between the characters in the books and what shows up on in the series. But uh, are there any things when you first saw Walt uh, being, you know, portrayed uh, on film that you thought were a bit different than what you wrote about in the book? And did it bother you or was it just a nice, creative, artistic expression of what you would put together? No, Robert's way too good looking. He's, he's far too good looking. Get, it's very annoying, actually. Like it, uh, whenever you know, whenever they did the auditions, like at they as a creative yeah. consultant, they sent me the auditions. They sent yeah. me the DVDs, you know, for the characters' yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. auditions, and we got to see Robert Taylor's audition. And my wife was sitting behind me and went, "Oh my!" 
And I turn yeah. and look there and she goes, he's kind of like a TV version of you, taller, better looking with a better voice. So no, I really don't care for Robert Taylor in the role. Yeah. No, that's not true. Like at Robert actually marvelous yeah. in the role. Like at he's uh, one of a couple of things like that that are really great about um I mean I, I, I can go through like at and you know, of course they're like little things always, you know, that you're gonna think that are are different, you know, from what it is that you had in mind in your novels. But generally you know, the, 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 the directors and producers were really good at, you know, telling me why it is that they changed, you know, things that they did. Like that one of the big ones was uh, Katie Sackhoff has blonde hair um, as Victoria Moretti. Like that here she is, this Italian South Philadelphia transplant, you know, and, you know, blonde hair like that, you know. And, and uh, one of the main reasons for that was is that there are so many Native characters in the books, you know, that, you know, the mass, the, the majority of the characters in the books are brunettes. And so they really had to find a way visually to get Katie to kind of pop so she would look different like that. And Cassidy Freeman already had red hair as Walt's daughter. like that. And so they were trying to, they said, is there any way that she would have blonde hair? And I said, well, yeah, she can have blonde hair, but you just need to come up with a reason for her to have it is all. And they did. I thought they came up with a really good reason for that. But you know, it's yeah. interesting because there's generally a, a reasoning behind um, the things that they do. So this uh, Lawmire Day is usually in July. It happens in Buffalo, Wyoming, 20 miles up from where you live, right? Uh, uh-huh. um, close to 12,000 people come attend this festival. Where do they sleep? <laughs> That's a really good question. Like, um, some of them sleep here at the ranch. I guess. Do they? Camp <laughs> it, out? Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it actually started out, you know, pretty uh, small beans, like uh, as we like to say. Like It was actually the first Longmire Days was me sitting under a tent in front of the busy bee signing books for people like that. But uh, a couple of hundred people showed up for that event and it was fun. We had a really great time. And so then the office of tourism for the state of Wyoming, they asked me, they said, you know, well, you know, do you think you could get some of the actors to come up for Longmire days? And I said, I don't know. How many do you want? They said, all of them. And I said, <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, I'll have to check and see about that and see what we can do. Um, but we were, and we were able to to have uh, just about everybody, you know, from the cast, you know, here over the years. This was this will be. We're going into our eighth year. We're waiting to find out, you know, what's going to happen um, with the virus, like at as far as the quarantine things are concerned, and all of that. You know, we we don't want to make sure, you know, make, that we make any errors on that. We want to err on the side of safety um, and on good health for everybody. Like, you know, and, and if we have to, you know, not do it this year, you know, and, and go it, you know, next year. Uh, most certainly it'll come roaring back, you know, uh, with a vengeance, I'm sure, like that, because uh, it doesn't seem to have lost any of its impetus. You know, over the years, I kind of yeah. thought that since Netflix, you know, we're uh, going into our third year after Netflix, you know, has you know decided to not continue forth, but we'll see what happens with Warner Brothers and their streaming station. They're talking about movies, the potential of that is still out there like that. But, you know, we're still streaming on Netflix 24-7. And so, you know, people are, you know, discovering the television show and discovering the books, you know, every day. Um, which is really kind of wonderful like that. And uh, there's been no tapering off of the amount of people mm. that show up for Longmire days. It seems to, you know, sell out almost instantaneously. That's great. Did I hear a little hint or maybe foreshadowing or maybe hope that there might be a movie coming out sometime that uh, might involve some of these characters uh, from the Longmire series? I do know that there have been some conversations, you know, with uh, some of the actors and the producers, you know, with, uh, the people at Warner Brothers to the potential of the possibility of being able to resurrect Longmire to do some TV movies um, on that streaming platform. I mean, the difficulty of trying to go back into a full-blown television series is, is that that takes up like about four or five months of the actor's time. 
And, you know, we've got some of our actors that have gone on and are doing other things. They're doing, they're doing feature films. They're doing other television shows and all of this. And so they, the possibility of getting them together for a four or five month period all together at one time is, is, is a little bit more difficult. And so that's where the idea of maybe some television movies kind of came together because you could get all of them together for one month, be able to produce something like an hour and a half or two hour movie, and then, you know, be able to put those up, you know, you know two, three times a year, which would be wonderful for everybody. Well, that's exciting. I look forward to uh, seeing a couple of uh, Walt Longmire movies. That'd be awesome. Uh, so, too. as we yeah, as we, as we finish up here, let's do our little writing life segment here. A um, few questions there. Okay. Um, someone has asked you before how many words per day you write, and you said that's the wrong question. That uh, <laughs> th- that you should enjoy the journey and don't stare at the odometer. Can you speak to that? <laughs> yeah, I just you know, and whenever I get asked that question, I'm always you know, well, I guess the the, the reason I laugh first off is because I have no idea. I have yeah. no idea how many words I do, how many pages I do, any of that stuff. I, I really don't pay any attention to that. You know, I just uh, yeah. I go sit down and get into that world and I write. What that and uh, if you're if you're writing and as you're typing along, you're counting the words that you're you know you're doing you're kind of missing the point. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, going on a trip and not looking out the windows or, or, or enjoying the drive and staring at the odometer little numbers as they click by like that, you know, that that's just not my idea of a good time. And so for me, I think it's important, you know, to, that it's the quality of the work rather than the, the quantity of the work, right. you know, that, yeah. that really makes a difference. Like, and so um, I'm, 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 I don't count words. I don't count pages and I never will. I, I don't have any idea. When I turn one of the novels in to Viking Penguin, um, you know, thank goodness I've never come up shorter. You know, only the first time did I come up a little long, um, yeah. you know, but overshooting the mark by about 200 page, 250 pages like that. But uh, yeah, just, you know, enjoy the ride, have a good time, tell a good story. That was what my yeah. buddy, Tony Hillerman used to say, tell a good, tell story. a good story. So you, you chose first person. You talked about that. You're in Walt's head. Um, all these books appear to be in first person. Do you ever find yourself asking in real life, WWWD, what would Walt do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do. I do. And uh, it goes both ways. You know, it kind of goes both ways like that because, um, I mean, there are, I, I guess, I mean, there there are things that Walt does that there's no way I would ever do. Um, but then, you know, Walt's life has been very different from my life. Like, you know, Walt's training and, you know, Walt's occupation, you know, is very, very different, you know, from what it is that I do. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I, the things that I, I, I have to be honest and say that I like to think that the, the things that I really enjoy about Walt, the things that I really like about Walt, um, are the things that I think a lot of readers kind of respond to, um, to a certain extent. You know, I think that, you know, and, and it's not that Walt's, you know, the six foot two of Twisted Steel and Sex Appeal, even though Robert Taylor does appear to be the six foot two of Twisted Steel and Sex Appeal. Um, you know, it's it's the aspects of Walt's character. You know, he he he's decent. You know, he's a good guy. He's always trying to do the right thing. He's got a sense of humor. He's tough. He's smart. He's well-read. Um, he's a lot of, a lot of the things that I would love to aspire to. Um, and you know, a lot of people will ask me that question. They'll say, you know, well, you know, how much of you is Walt, you know, and how much, you know, of, uh, uh, of Walt is you and you of Walt and all of this. And I'm always saying the best, best quote about that is the one that my wife gives out where she says, Walt is who Craig would like to be in 10 years. It's just that he's off to an incredibly slow start like that. And, uh, I, I would have a hard time arguing with that because it's true. Like, <laughs> I do, I do remember from meeting Judy at the conference she came along with you that she's one of your uh, 
constructive, well, your your main constructive feedback person who kind of keeps you in your writing lane and keeps you humble. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, that that's one of the big problems, I think, you know, that you run into. Like, at, you, you hope in your life, you know, that you'll have somebody who will be honest with you and tell you, you know, what the things that, you know, maybe not what you want to hear, but certainly what you need to hear. Yeah. Um, I think we've all, like, you know, we've read a lot of novelists like that who are, are big name novelists and get to a certain point where, you know, the editors, you know, there, there isn't anybody telling them what to do. And, uh, and you know, they, they write these novels that are just, you know, disingenuous and like overwrought and overworked. And, you know, and you look yeah. at them and you think, yeah, you could have taken about 100 pages out of this thing and it wouldn't have hurt it one darn bit. But nobody was there to tell them that, you know, whether in their professional life or in their personal life, you know, well, you know, the, the great thing about, you know, writing at home is, is that, you know, I, I get to utilize one of my favorite things, which is, you know, have somebody read your work back to you. I can't emphasize this enough, like, you know, for all the young writers out there, potential writers out there, like, um, you need to have somebody read your work back to you, like that, because you will hear every mistake you've made. Not read it yourself, because you'll do the instant edit, you know, on the fly, kind of thing, you know, and patch it all up so it sounds all right. But if somebody is reading it back to you, what's on the page, you know, you'll hear every mistake you've ever made. And so whenever I go to bed at night, you know, generally I'll hand Judy the pages and she'll read them back to me and we'll both, you know, you know, you know, snarl and, you know, and, you know, and grimace, you know, our way through, you know, some of the things I wrote that day. And those will be the things I'll attack first thing the next day. But the most frightening thing that you can hear at the ranch is the phrase, is there another way to say this um, that, that, you know, keeps me from being a lazy author. And the example that I always use is the red hot gun barrel swung around under the looming mountains, you know, well, you know, the, the, the gun barrel is always red hot. The mountains are always looming, you know, yeah. and I'm always telling writing students, if you write something and it sounds like something you've read before, guess what you have, get rid yeah. of, it. you know, go somewhere else, yeah. use some different words, find some way, other way, you know, to describe something, you know, don't loom, don't red hot. You know, you find another way to say this, you know, because your job is not to put the reader to sleep. Your job is to spark the imagination of that reader so that they don't go to bed. They stay up and, you know, and read another chapter for another 45 minutes, you know, and you make them groggy the next day. Yeah. Like, you know, your, yeah. your job is that, you know, and, uh, yeah. and Judy is, you know, uh, uh, to a great extent, you know, the one that, you know, kind of keeps me honest along those lines. You covered a number of the 47 points already. One of the number one things you told us in this uh, writing conference, you said, I believe in mechanics. And uh, when I saw that, I wrote this little little lead here. I'm going to share with you, and then I've got a question. I said, I said uh, those of you who've read the Longmire novels know that the words Johnson uses to bring the modern West to life sound anything but mechanical. The description of places up to literary standards, the dialogue is crisp and direct, and the characters are vivid and believable. And yet Johnson said that one of his secrets is in the mechanics, which sounds a bit like cleaning out his horse stalls on a frosty morning in Ucross, Wyoming, population 25. His roll up your sleeves and smell the surroundings approach to writing came to life when Johnson shared stories about his life. His mountain climbing adventures and willingness to take risks makes him something of a George Plumptum of the West, never reluctant to take on a challenge. So what do you mean when you say it's all about the mechanics? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. That was uh, that's very complimentary. Like, and I don't quite know how to respond to to that other than to say thank you. Okay. Um, I, I I don't know. I mean, for me, a lot of the mechanics, you know, are you know, it, it goes back to what I was talking about as far as the uh, the outlining is concerned, 
as far as the research is concerned. I mean, there are certain aspects, you know, of being a novelist that are just not as sexy as, you know, sitting down and just hitting the keyboards and writing snappy dialogue like that or, you know, having a beer with Lou Diamond Phillips or, you know, whatever, whatever the things happen to be like that, that, that sounds so exciting and so wonderful and all this. There's the, the really grubby work, the dirty work of sitting down and hammering out, you know, the work that needs to be done before you sit down and start that composition, you know, on the on the keyboard. Um, and you just have to get used to the idea that those are going to be the moments where you're going to have to knuckle down and do mm -hmm. the hard work. Um, mm -hmm. The other one that I'm always discussing, you know, with a lot of authors is, is that first writing, that first draft that you do, that's just the beginning. You yeah. know, it, yeah. in a lot of ways, you know, writing a book is like, you know, going on that journey where we talked about, you know, ignoring the odometer like that, you know, and, and seeing the scenery. Um, you think you know what a book is about. You think you know what's going to happen and how it's all going to play out and all this. But then you start writing it and all of a sudden things start happening. Things start changing. There's an improvisational aspect to the whole process that you kind of have to be open to because that's where the magic happens. Um, mm. You know, if you sit down, I mean, I think it was um, a couple of different authors that I've heard say it, um, that, you know, whenever you start off on a novel and you've got an outline, a really wonderful, detailed outline, and you go through and you write that entire book and you do every single thing that's in that outline, you failed because something <laughs> should have happened along the way. Something should have happened that would catapult you further and, and have you do more. You know, there should have been, you know, some revelations, you know, that happened during the course of the writing of that novel. Like that. And that's what really makes for the excitement of, you know, of writing a novel. If it was just the grinding out work of sitting down and writing your outline and then just steadfastly high bound, you know, writing of a novel that did everything, you know, that's in that outline, it really wouldn't be that much of a joy. It would be more like, you know, when I'm down there shoveling out the barn, um, yeah, you know, yeah. I think you, know, you got to hope for that magic to kind of happen along the yeah. way um, yeah. because you are going to discover things along the way that, you know, you think you do, you think you know all about the situation, think you knew all about the characters, think you knew all about the plot, but maybe you didn't. Yeah, those are great points. And a couple of things you said in that conference impressed me. You said, write to publish to get your message into the world. Take joy every day in your chance to write. Write every day. And this is the one I really like. Hunt down new ideas with a passion. And you used Jack, you used Jack London as an example. You said he, he hunted, he used a club or something. And Picasso, the canvas was scared of him, not him scared of the canvas. And that's how you approach it, right? When you walk out there, you want the piece of paper to be afraid of you, not you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the two that immediately come to mind are the one with Jack London, like that. He says, you don't wait around for motivation. You go out and you hunt it with a club is what you do. Like, And then uh, the one from Picasso, of course, was somebody asked him, they said, are you ever intimidated, you know, by that blank canvas in the morning? And he looked at him and said, that that blank canvas better be afraid of me in the morning. Like, and uh, that's the way you kind of you have to look at it is like this embracing of this, this the, the gratitude that you should have as a writer to have the ability like that to jump on there and really get the, the chance to do this. I mean, it's so absolutely marvelous. Um, it, it just, it's, it's, it's like breathing. It's like eating like that. It's like all of the things making love. It, it's, it's, it's an essential part, you know, of, of who it is that you are and, 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 and what you'll be like that. Um, and uh, once you embrace that, you know, then I, I think it, it gets rid of a lot of those worries that, that really aren't there. They, I mean, I hear people talking about the writer's block thing and I'm like, you know, writer's block is just not knowing what happens next. 
you know, yeah. and if you've got an outline or you've done the research or you've done all of those things that you needed to do before you started working, writer's writer's block doesn't exist. No such thing. All it is is lazy writer. You'd rather go out and, you know, go for a walk or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you need to go out and take a walk and come back. But um, no such thing. Yeah. I, you know, and I could sit here and talk all day with you about this, but I'm not. I know you got to clean out a horse stall or do something. I do. <laughs> but I want to tell people what your idea of hell is. You told us what your idea of hell was when you were in this conference. Uh, you said, uh, my idea of hell is being stuck somewhere without a book. So <laughs> you're, you're, a big re- you're a big reader, right? I mean, you I am. Reading. I, I don't yeah. think you can be a writer without being a big reader. I, I, yeah. I, I think that that's you know, one of the joys of my life is um, is the reading. I mean, that 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 kind of has to be it informs, you know, it's going to inform your writing. I mean, you know, I can't imagine, you know, all of the authors that have had, you know, such a large scale effect, you know, on who it is that I am as a writer. I mean, John Steinbeck, you know, um, Jack London, uh, um, you know, uh, George MacDonald Frazier. I mean, you know, uh, uh, I could go through uh, Dickens, you know, I mean, there's just so many like at Harper Lee, like, I mean, there's so many like that, that are so important to me like that. But, um, I think, you know, you have to have to get to that point, you know, where it's just, you know, uh, uh, and that's that, I guess that's another one of the benefits also like that, because you can also read. And if anybody gives you a hard time about reading, you can say, hey, I'm doing research here. This is important. You know, you can lay there on the sofa in front of the wood burning stove like that. And uh, it's almost impossible to tell, tell whether it is I'm taking a nap like that or reading. You know, and so I've kind of uh, honed it down, you know, to a, a, an absolute ability like that. But uh, I, I love to read like that. I've got like reading stations um, all over the ranch. You know, I've got a pile of books down here on the kitchen table. I've got a pile of books on my nightstand up in the bedroom. I've got a pile of books on my writing desk. I've got I've got books down in the tack shed in the barn. So if I'm waiting, you know, for the stock tank to fill up, I can pull out one of those and read, um, you know, the assemblage of those words, you know, on a page like that. That's that's where the artwork, you know, kind of comes to it. You know, what kind of a, a balance do you have, you know, between narrative, um, descriptive passages like that and dialogue and, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the length of the dialogue and all these different things like that. There's so many artistic aspects that you can take into consideration that I feel like I can do this, you know, for the rest of my life and I'll never fully figure it all out like that. But I'm, I'm willing to pick up the gauntlet and try and give it a shot. What I'm, what I'm hearing, which makes me uh, really hopeful of being able to have a book a year for the next, oh, I don't know how many every years is you don't really treat this as much like a job. You're enjoying this. You're not thinking about quote retirement. You're going to keep writing, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's absolutely no, it's uh, I, I, I wouldn't know what to do. You know, I, I, you know, I'd I'd be wandering around the streets of you cross, you know, trying to find something to do. And that's a, that's a dismal prospect. Only 18 other people, you know, (laughs) exactly. They'd be really tired of hearing me. I, but the big one would be Judy. I'm sure she would shoot me. Like if yeah, you know, if I yeah. didn't have something that took me away and something to do, like that would occupy my time and energies, you know, for a certain you know portion of the day. But uh, but yeah, it's you know, I, I, there's never a day that goes by. The word that comes immediately to mind is gratitude. Um, yeah. the, the opportunity to you know to be able to do what it is that I do, and uh, and there's so many people you know that I. I, I rely on, you know, to, to do what it is that I do. Like at, you know, the, the readers being a number one, like at the people that have embraced, you know, this world, these characters, you know, and, uh, and dutifully wait, you know, for the next installment to come out. The next installment, of course, being 
um, you know, uh, the, the next to last stand, which is not the next to last stand. There's lots of stands left. So don't worry about that. Um, but the next to last stand, which will be out on September 22nd, I believe they've actually already given me a pub date and everything like that. But I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Like I'm looking yeah. forward, hopefully, you know, the quarantine and all this foolishness will be over with and I can, you know, go out and, you know, and be on tour like it and be able to, to see those people because I really enjoy um, meeting and seeing those people on a yearly basis. Like it's a, it's a blast for me. Every aspect of the work is a blast for me. Yeah, that's great. Well, you've been very generous with your time today. Uh, we're going to have information in the show notes, links to your website and other ways they can find out. Remember listeners that that next book comes out in uh, September, 2020, whether there is a virus or not, it'll, it'll be coming out. You can read it in the privacy around home, but hopefully Craig will be out on the trail. Uh, are you still riding a motorcycle? Craig? I, I do. I yeah. do. That's one of the things my wife is trying to get rid of, but so far she hasn't. So Okay. Craig, thanks so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure, Landis. This was a joy, as usual. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.